Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth, for reading that for us, and thank you for leading us in worship, of course. Wonderful songs. So thankful. And I'm thankful that God brought each one of you here, and it was no accident or coincidence. God is involved in every detail, especially the ones that are revolved around his word. Will you bow with me as we pray for his blessing this morning? Father, I am grateful for each soul that's here, and I pray, Lord, knowing that you are very intimately involved with every single person that's here, and Lord, I pray that you would please help us. Help us as we hear the word preached. Lord, I pray that you would apply your eternal truths to our hearts. I pray that you would help me, of course, to present this truth rightly, lovingly, boldly, accurately, Lord, not adding anything to it or taking anything away from it. And I know that we all come from very different places, Lord, maybe even places when it comes to the, the state of our soul, uh, places when it comes to maybe we had very, uh, a very great week, Lord, maybe we had a very frustrating week or maybe a very sorrowful week, but Lord, you know, and I know that you have a word for each one of us. Please, Lord, help us to focus now. Please help us to focus. Lord, take distractions away. Help us to focus on this time where you're speaking to us, and I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I noticed a phenomenon that's becoming more and more prevalent. Uh, it's always been there to one degree or another, but it's definitely becoming more normal, especially among the younger generation, though it's not exclusive for them by any means. But those 30 and under, I'd say it's much more prevalent to see this among them. What is it? What am I talking about? Well, this is what it is. If there's a disagreement, if there's um, an offense of any kind, if there is even an accidental offense, there will come a quick and a decisive and sometimes permanent cutting off of that person and cutting out that person from your life. Unfriend, block, delete, shun. Even sometimes shunning the friends of that person, I've noticed. It's very childish, of course. It's very foolish because there's something good that comes from being able to sit down and talk with someone whom you disagree with. Not only talk to them, but talk about your differences, why you believe differently, understanding the side of the other person, and then afterwards, maybe even enjoying a Coke together. Sometimes relationships like that even help the other person to see um, the merit of the other person's side. And since 
when there's a disagreement, you're not both right. Someone's wrong. Either this person's right and this one's wrong, or vice versa, or you're both wrong. That's the only options that exist out there on planet Earth. But when there's a disagreement, you're not both right. It's not possible, especially on certain subjects. So that's why relationships like that, that can actually talk through these things and see the merit of the other person's side, perhaps, it helps also keep that person a friend so that maybe he or she will look into your view and consider it and maybe be changed. Since, again, you're not both right. Well, God's not like that. God's not like the youth of our day. He doesn't unfriend, block, permanently delete those who once disagreed with him. Maybe even those who once hated him but are now willing to repent and to turn. His character is different than man's. God's character is different from man's. That's actually more of a a profound statement than you realize. His character is especially different than the overprivileged, proud, and foolish men. Though this is an Old Testament text we're going through this morning, to Old Testament people, there's a great deal of the gospel in this message, a great deal of the gospel in this message. And though Jesus isn't mentioned in this text, I promise you, he is walking through these pages, and you'll see that. Let's start off with verse 12. You see there in verse 12, it starts with a word, and a word that is actually a command. It's the word go. It's part of the broader context, go and proclaim these words towards the north. But it's the word go. Obedience would be required by Jeremiah to fulfill this command. Jeremiah would have to make a deliberate, intentional, willing act of obedience here. God says, go and do this. It is a command that here's the truth. If Jeremiah did not do that, he would not be obeying the Lord. He would indeed be disobeying the Lord if he didn't go and do this, right? Seems pretty simple. Seems pretty simple. That's why we can't call ourselves disciples. We can't call ourselves followers of the Lord if we're not walking in obedience to him. And for those of you who are new here, I've got a saying when it comes to obedience. I'm not talking about obedience in perfection, but in direction, because none of us obey in perfection. We don't. However, obedience in direction means this. I'm walking towards the Lord, I'm obeying him, and I get off the way, and I'm convicted of my sin, and I say, oh, Father, please forgive me. That was dumb of me. That was, please help me. I feel dirty. I want to be, and then he brings us back on the path, and we're walking on it. Then we get off to this other side, and then we say, oh, Father, please forgive me. But it's in direction. You see that? It's in direction, not in perfection. None of us walk in perfect obedience to the Lord, which is why we need Jesus. I was working somewhere once, and another coworker uh, thought I did something bad, something evil, and he, he knew I was one of the only Christians there at the place, and, um, but I didn't. <laughs> and he said, see, see, I knew it. Cohen's a sinner. <laughs> and I said, of course I'm a sinner. That's why I need Jesus. Duh. You don't need a savior. Unless you need something to be saved from. No one says, help, I'm drowning while watching TV. Because you're not drowning 
Well, someone might say, help, I'm drowning if he can't swim and he's in the middle of the ocean because then he needs to be saved. And so he would show himself here completely disobedient to God if he had not obeyed. Jesus says in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's bold. Why do you call me Lord, but you're not walking in obedience to me? In other words, you have no right to say that I'm your Lord if you're not walking in obedience to God. Again, not in perfection, but in, at least in direction. Yes? Of course, we want him as Savior. No one wants to go to hell. But he's a package deal. He's Savior and Lord. So he says, go, Jeremiah. You have to go. You have to get up. That's the first step. You have to make a deliberate act of obedience to get up and go to do this next part. Go, he says, proclaim these words. Proclaim these words, prophet of mine. Jeremiah, not your words. These words. Jeremiah was not to speak his words. He was not even supposed to speak a watered-down version of God's words. Not a watered-down message to take, the, take those sharp edges off God's message. After all, we wouldn't want anyone getting offended. We wouldn't want anyone getting their feelings hurt or even accidentally thinking maybe that we're judging them. Let's, let's shave off those sharp edges. Now, of course, that's never our goal. If that's your goal, to purposely, purposefully offend people and make them hate you, that's a wrong motive. But I will promise you this. If you're walking in the truth, someone will be offended by what you say. Someone will call you a hater. Someone will say, you're judging me. But it's not judging anyone to just look and make a moral assessment. That's not actually judging. It's not actually judging to hold myself and others to the standard of the word of God. That's not judging anyone. If anything, it's God doing the judging. Yes? Not you. So Jeremiah was not to proclaim his words, a watered-down version of God's words, not to try to take off those pointed edges, because God's words are the only ones with power and effect and are the only ultimate truth. Why would we want to speak anything besides God's words to a lost and dying people. Your words have no power. Your words have, even though you think maybe they're eloquent, they have no power to convert a heart. They have no power to take a dead heart and cause it to live. Your words can't do that. God's words are the only words that not only his ministers, but also his lay people have any business proclaiming. And so, here's Jeremiah being told to go and proclaim these words where? Towards the north. Why? Is that just God's favorite direction? Why is he saying that? Proclaim it towards the north. I just like the north. Now, this is where the people of Israel, and remember, for those of you who haven't been here for the last couple of Sundays, I don't just choose texts and say, this is my favorite, I think I'll preach it. We're, we're preaching through this book. So we're, we're landing on this section this morning by God's design. And what happened prior to this was the people of Israel, who were up north, 
people of Judah down south because they were split at this point, were carried off by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. So they're carried off. They're away. Judah's still in the land, but part of this book is Jeremiah saying to Judah, hey, you have to repent or a nation's coming, and they're going to do to you just what they did to Israel. And so he's saying, proclaim to the north, to the ones that have already been carried away. This is who this message is for, the ones who were already gone, the ones who were already being punished, already in exile. And he's saying, I want you to proclaim it to them. So that's our context. This is to a wayward, wicked people under discipline and judgment. We need that because that makes these next words hit home even closer. And that makes these next words even more dear to someone who is himself or herself under discipline, under judgment, for breaking God's laws just as Israel did. This is, in essence, a gospel message this morning, as you'll see. And he says, proclaim towards where? The north. To these people who've been sent away. And this is what he says. Return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. Return faithless Israel. How wonderful. How wonderful. The sermon this morning is actually titled, Return to God, and this is how. Return to God, and this is how. Because he's calling to them, saying, return, and then he's going to tell them how to return. That's actually the two parts of this sermon. The call to return, and then, this, then they're instructed how to return. But at first, he's saying, return, faithless Israel. So number one, they're called to return. This is a lot like Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up and preaches to a people in Acts 3.19. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. The Lord's been calling sinners to repentance for thousands of years. And he's not going to stop until the last day. There will be a final day when sinners are not called to it anymore. There will be a final day when the days of grace are over. And no man will be able to say on that day, but I didn't have enough time. Return, faithless Israel. That's a loaded sentence, even though it's only a portion of a sentence. Even though it's only three words right there. Return, faithless Israel. Because that's what got them in this mess in the first, first place. They were faithless. They didn't have faith. They did not believe what God said. They didn't believe it enough to take it to heart to live it out. All of you are sitting in chairs this morning. That means you, before you sat in that chair, you had faith that that chair would hold you up. And the way you showed that you had a faith that that chair would hold you up is how you sat down in it. You had to put the full weight of your sin on the Lord Jesus Christ. He bore the wrath of God, all of it, on the cross that day. Both a horrible day because the one man in all the universe that the wrath of God had no business falling, it fell on that man. So in one way, it was a horrible day. Such an innocent, beautiful, glorious, lovely, awesome, 
powerful, majestic man who should be adored and worshiped forever and who is being adored and worshiped forever. The wrath of God fell on him. What a dark day. That's why the sun went dark. That's why there were earthquakes. This was a horrible thing. But at the same time, it was a wonderful thing because it means salvation for sinners who will put their faith in Jesus. And we show that we put our faith in Jesus by actually resting the weight of our sin, resting the weight of our lives on Jesus. And that's what, that was the problem with Israel. They were faithless. They didn't have that faith. It was only, as we saw last week in pretense, it was a facade. With the mouth, oh yes, with the mouth, but not with the heart. We know all about that. Some of us were like that. I was like that before coming to faith. I could give the right answers. I could tell you enough to get you off my back. Because after all, aren't religious people totally annoying when you're in your sin? (laughs) Aren't they? Just go away from me. You make me really uncomfortable. Because I want to keep sinning. I can't do that with a clean conscience. Well, I can't keep doing that with a seared conscience. You keep reminding me of my sin and I'm going to face judgment. Go away. I don't like you. And then when you get saved... Those are the only people you really love to be around, like, so much as a church family. And more about that in next week's sermon. But next, they are reminded of who God is. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Isn't that wonderful? I will not look on you in anger, for I'm merciful. Mercy is when you receive kindness from God that you don't deserve. Mercy is when you receive kindness from anyone that you don't deserve. I was watching the movie once, and there were two men fighting, and if I'm not mistaken, there was a sword fight. And the other one got the other one down, and he could run him through because he won. And the guy on the ground said, Mercy! Meaning, yes, yes, as, as the rules go, you're supposed to run me through with your sword because you won. You all, every right to do that. I'm on the ground. You, you beat me. I'm unarmed now. Mercy? Mercy, please? You don't, you're not supposed to do it. But mercy? That's what mercy is. Favor, grace, compassion. You're not rightly supposed to get. And why can God be merciful to you? Why can he? Well, we've referenced back to the young theologian in our midst, Evangeline Harrison. She told us that it was because Jesus took the punishment for sinners. See, in the Old Testament, this is, there's another theologian who is a music, music artist. I just call him a theologian because his songs are like sermons that rhyme. His name is Shai Lin. And he said this in one of his songs. This is the point. Under the Old Testament, he says, we were saved, they were saved on credit. In the New Testament, we're saved on debit. In the Old Testament, the payment was coming. 
like when you charge something on credit, you get it, but the payment's coming in the future. Well, when you charge something with debit, the money's already in the bank account, and they yank it out immediately, don't they? See, Jesus is right there in the middle of all that. He could be merciful to them because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was coming. And when he took the wrath of God upon himself, he took all the sins of everyone who would ever believe past and future forever. That's why when you confess your sins, he can forgive you because Jesus already took the punishment for that sin. Wonderful. That's why God can say, I am merciful. Why? Because they put their faith in what he says. If they put their faith in God's words, he applies their faith forward to Jesus. Just like it said about Abraham, he believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because Jesus, period. I will not look upon you in anger for I am merciful, declares the Lord. There's two verses in Psalm 86 that are beautiful. Psalm 86, verse 5 and verse 15. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. And then again, he says in verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's why God says at the end of that verse, I will not be angry forever. Psalm 103, 9 says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. Now, does everyone just get that? You just get that? Just, just, just because that's God's character? That's what I used to think before I was saved. One reason is because of the false gospel that's been pushed on America and it spread throughout the world for, for so many years is that cheap grace. It's just, you know, you just come, you say a prayer, mean it, sort of even, that's, that's good enough. And then you're in, period, forever, you're just in. I don't care if you live like the devil after that. You walk the aisle and you said the prayer. And you know, it's magic. It's just a magic prayer, apparently. No, that's not scriptural. Now, is the sinner's prayer, has God used the sinner's prayer? Absolutely, 100%. 100% he has. Because people actually had faith when they prayed it. But just the words themselves are just words. Just like that water, it's just water. It doesn't actually save you. It shows something that's already there by faith. By faith. And should someone... After entering the, water, the waters of baptism, turn from the faith, turn from Jesus, take the Bible and punt it and say, I'm done with that mess. It will just show that they never knew the Lord in the first place. That's what it'll show. And so God will be merciful to those who truly come to him in repentance you don't just get this. You don't just get it just because, well, that's just how God is. He's just, he's just like that. He just forgives everyone. Me, my friends. What about Hitler? Oh, no, of course not Hitler. What about Justice Stalin? Well, no, of course not Stalin. But pretty much everybody else. No. 
those who come to him in repentance. How do I know that? Why do I say that? Well, look at the next verse. Look at the next verse, verse 13. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree. That's the high place. He, he, he made reference to this last week as well. And last week's message, prior to this, the context, every green tree, those were the high places where they worshiped pagan gods, where they worshiped idols and all the high places. So that's what that's a reference to. And that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. So we can really break this down into four things. He really says four things in this verse. And I, I made a slide to show you how, really how they, how they break down. And while you're looking at that, Matthew Henry, he was a preacher many years ago. He's been with Jesus for hundreds of years. Uh, godly man, really great, wonderful Bible teacher. Listen to what he says about this verse. He talks about the four parts to it. Number one, he says, we must own the corruption of our nature. That's why it says, acknowledge thy guilt, the perverseness and irregularity of your nature. So that's why, number one, it says, acknowledge your guilt. We must acknowledge the corruption of our nature. We have to acknowledge that. Number two, according to this verse, we must own our actual sins. That's why it says that you have rebelled against the Lord your God. Matthew Henry says, You've affronted him and offended him. You must own your actual sins. The third part, we must own the multitude of our transgressions. That's why it says that you have scattered your favors among foreigners, run here and there in pursuit of other idols under every green tree. We have to own the multitude of our transgressions. Not just like, yes, I did this one thing this one time, my bad God. No, no multitude of transgressions. And the longer you're in the faith, the more sensitive you are to your sins. I remember after after I first got saved, how happy I was to be in Jesus. Oh my goodness, so thankful that I was saved from the transgressions of my sins. But it didn't, it wasn't too long that my flesh took hold and I started thinking, and boy, you know, now I'm not that bad. I'm pretty holy. And the longer I'm in the faith, the more my sins are ever before me. Even on the way to church this morning, I was thinking how selfish I am. This morning, even, just how selfish I am. Because I am. I struggle with that. I do. And God helps me. I've got a long way to go. I've got a long way to go. But when I was still immature in the faith, in the faith, nonetheless, but immature, still growing. And it seems like the older saints who have been in the faith for decades are so humble because they see, I don't deserve to be here. Not at all. Not at all. And so that's the part, the third part. Trans- confess the multitude of our transgressions. The Israelites had worshiped under every green tree, all these idols. And then lastly, where it says, and that you have not obeyed my voice, Matthew Henry says this, number four, we must aggravate, he says, our, our sin from the disobedience that there is in it to the divine law. The sinfulness of sin is the worst thing in it. He says, acknowledging that and letting that humble you more than any other thing is necessary. The sinfulness of your sin, just how terribly sinful your sin really is because of how holy God really is. 
So that's the four parts that they need to do. They need to see. That's how they return. I told you we're going to talk about number one, the call to return. Then number two, the instructions on how to return. That's it. Right there, verse 13, all four parts. Acknowledging your guilt, you've rebelled against God, telling exactly what you've done. This is how bad it is, God. And then lastly, it just comes down to plain old disobedience. I just disobeyed because I wanted to. I know what you say. I know what this says, okay? But I just did it because I wanted to. I don't care. I do what I want to do. You know, we're the only things on planet Earth that do that, man. The animals don't do that. Even dirt, when it mixes with water, turns into mud. It always does. It always does exactly what God intended it to do. But not humans made in the image of God. We are the only ones that look at God and say, no. The winds and the waves obey him. The seasons change at his command. But humans rebel. We are vile. And God is merciful. And that should humble you. The ones who hear, oh, he's merciful? Well, that means I can just sin more. That just shows that you don't get it. It shows that I didn't get it either before I was saved. Unless you're truly convicted by your sin, you don't truly appreciate being forgiven of your sin. Remember the woman who came in to wash Jesus' feet with her tears, dry them with her hair, and the Pharisees were like, oh, if he were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, that she's touching him. He wouldn't allow that. And he said, let me tell you a story. There were two men that owed someone money. One owed him a huge amount. It was so large in Jesus' story, equivalent to maybe like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he said, and the other one owed him this much, very little. And he said he saw that neither of the men could pay their debts, so he forgave them both. And then he said, which one of them will love the man more? And the Pharisee answered rightly. He said, I suppose the man who was forgiven more. And he said, exactly. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. That's why I'm just so skeptical when I don't see a hatred of sin and a love for God in someone who says to me, I'm a Christian. Now, am I here to just slam people? No, I'm here to say truth is truth, and it's God's truth, and if it's truly effective in your life, it's going to have an effect in your life, period. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm trying to say is this Bible is authoritative, and it's right, and if it's real in your life, it'll have an effect on your life. That's all I'm trying to say. That's all I'm trying to say, really. Please, hear my motive. Hear my motive in this, please. The Bible says in Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Someone needs to hear that. Maybe many of us. Because we live in an age where it's very easy to conceal transgressions. It's very easy to hide what you're doing on, on the computer. It's very easy to hide your location on your phone. It's very easy to it's very easy to hide in our day. Hide lots of things. 
It's very easy to monkey with numbers, even when you're doing your taxes, so that you can get more money. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. And then he says, but. That's a contrast word. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You want mercy from God? Confess and forsake your sin. Both are necessary. Confess and forsake. Not, the, not just the confession, but the forsaking. Because if I punched you in the face and I said, I'm sorry, that was wrong, you might say, I forgive you. But if, if I punched you in the face again, three seconds after that, you start to question the authenticity of my acknowledgement that that was wrong. And then if I did it again, you'd say, okay, you're about to get hit back, you skinny, four-eyed white boy. <laughs> I'm going to knock you out because I don't believe you. And you're just hurting me. Whoever confesses and forsakes and forsakes them obtains mercy. Both are necessary. And that's where the, usually the American gospel and the sinful mindset get God wrong. I want the mercy and the sin. And there's some ministers that will tell you, okay, you can have both. Let's just, just pray this prayer and, you know, at your funeral, everybody will say, yes, he lived like the devil, but, you know, I was there when he was 12, and he walked the aisle and said that prayer. So I know. Now, I know the word of God is true, and I know that's wrong. Why am I harping on that so much? Because I want people to actually know God, have their sins forgiven, and be in heaven. That's why. Because as a minister of the gospel, I have to speak this word. I have to. And I have to confront error. I have to. And it's not always fun. Because guess what? Not every single person that I confront with lovingly in their error thanks me. <laughs> now later on they might. Leviticus 26 happened way before this text. Leviticus is part of the law that God gave to Moses. Moses wrote those first five books of the Bible, and this is part of it. And in the law of Leviticus, he tells, hey, there's going to be a time when the people sin, but if they confess that their sins and come back, this is what will happen. So this is prophesied hundreds of years before this even happens. Look on the screen with me. Leviticus 26, 40 and 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery, and they um, that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. That's the exile. If their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and, and remember my covenant with Isaac and with Abraham, and I will remember the land. He says, if they confess... Repent and turn back to me. Listen, those last words are very important. Listen. He said, I will remember my covenant. That covenant that he made of old. He said, I'll go all the way back and remember that agreement that I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to bless them, 
to bless the world through them. That's why in verse 14, he says, Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. Again, that's the heart of the problem. Faithlessness. For I am your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. Almost done, folks. Listen. Return, faithless children, declares the Lord. For I am your master. Literally, and if you have a different translation than the ESV, like for example, I think if you have the King James or the New King James, it says here, literally, I'm your husband. Because that's what it's actually in the... Hebrew says, I'm your husband. This is really interesting because if you were here last week, you recall God said about Israel, I gave them a certificate of divorce, he said. So is he contradicting himself here? Divorce, I thought, you can't still be their husband if you divorce them, God. Isn't it interesting? I thought he sent them away. He's looking at her, faithless Israel again, still, and saying, I'll take you back. I'll take you back. You were faithless. You were unfaithful. That's where we get the word infidelity from. It comes from the word, the Latin word, fidelis, which means faithful, which you've heard the Marines say, semper fidelis. So they say semper fi for short. Infidelity means unfaithfulness. They were unfaithful spiritually with God. They committed spiritual adultery. And God's saying, I'll take you back. Just acknowledge your guilt. Acknowledge that you were wayward. Just acknowledge that you went against me. Repent. Say you're sorry. Don't do it again. I'll take you back. kind of God do we have? He's not like man, is he? He's not like man. Wow. I'm your husband, he says. I'm your master. I will take you, one from a city, two from a family. I'll bring you to Zion. God's saying, I'm going I'm to pick the ones that come back even. You see some sovereign election here. One from a city, two from a family. But guess what? He's choosing who will be saved. The ones who want to be saved are the ones who actually want to be saved. Both are true. They're coming to him because they want to come to him. He's saying return, which means they have the ability to return. They make choices. They feel, I I want to be saved from my sin. Both are true. We see both in the scripture. How does that work, Cohen? How do you mesh those together? I don't know. But I see both in the scriptures. And they're glorious. And I'm glad they're there. Because I'm telling you right now, Sinful, 18-year-old Cohen Ezel had zero interest in righteousness, repentance, love for God, scriptures, zero. Sinful Cohen Ezel loved Cohen Ezel and not God. And a few months later, all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm different. I love God. And I hate sin. I think I'm saved. I was going to church. I mean, I did just wake up that way. You know, with no Bible. Just watching cartoons or something like that. No. I'd I'd been going to church. Hear you scripture. Because a friend of mine who I used to party with, he got saved. 
and invited me to church. And I got saved. And I praise God for that. And God did that work in me. And God says at the end of verse 14, I'll bring you to Zion. Where is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. What's inside the temple? The most holy place. What's inside the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. Where the glory of God, the presence of God dwells. So what's God saying here? I'm going to bring you back from where I threw you in my discipline, in my wrath. I'm going to bring you to me. Isn't that wonderful? I, me, God, I'm going to bring you to me. I'm going to do it. That's how you get there. God does it. So wherever you are right now, wherever you are spiritually, don't think, well, I guess I, I, guess I, I, guess I better. No. All you better do is just fall before God now. He brings you. He brings you. Remember how I told you God would remember his covenant? And that's what would be the thing that he would rest on and say, this is why I'm going to do what I'm doing. I told you this was a gospel message because listen to this. This is what covenant we're under. Same book, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says this. Actually, we're going to go through verse 34. Let's do that, guys. Let's do verse through verse 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the lands of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Look at this. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. If you're in Christ, let me tell you, congratulations. This is about you. You're in because of the new covenant. And so when you come back to God with your guilt, with your iniquity, and say, God, forgive me. You know what covenant he remembers? The one that Jesus brought in on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's good news, is it not? God will not delete, block, unfriend, shun people who come to him in faith. Father, we thank you for this word. It is mighty. It is powerful, good, true, righteous altogether. And I pray that you would continually please be applying this word to our hearts. Lord, help us to walk uprightly in faith and not be like Israel. Give us faith. Give us a want and a desire to walk in in your ways. Please, Lord, be doing that work. Draw sinners to yourself and build up the saints. Please do this work that only you can do. And I pray you would in Jesus' name. Amen.